Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. With me today is Dr. Jason Cryan. He's the Deputy Museum Director for Research and Collections, and he also is an entomologist. Dr. Cryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about what you do as the Deputy <laughs> Museum Director for Research and Collections? It's it's uh, it's an exciting job, and, and there are multiple aspects of the job that really are, are engaging for me. The first is that I'm the head of the scientific uh, research staff here at the museum, so I supervise a staff of about 30 scientists, mostly at the PhD level, some at the master's level. And these include professional scientists of various flavors, if you will. Uh, also, uh, collections professionals, people who curate and manage our research collections. What does uh, that mean to curate? So we have three million specimens, and we have a whole staff of people who whose job it is to make sure that those specimens are maintained for all of the future. So in other words, they're they're uh, in, in the right conditions physically for storage and whatnot, so that researchers can make use of these natural uh, science collections uh, for their scientific purposes the future. So uh, so that's one aspect of my job, is I'm kind of in charge of, of the research group here at the museum. The other, the other aspect is to continue my own personal research. So I'm an entomologist, as you uh, as you know. Uh, I study insects, all kinds of cool bugs uh, from around the world. I specialize in tropical insect biodiversity, and I, uh, as we'll, I'm sure, talk about, I, I specialize in a particular group of insects that are really charismatic, really cool, really fun to, to think about and talk about. So can you explain a little bit about what bio diversity is. Absolutely. So so at its core, the word biodiversity just means the diversity of life. So uh, all the kinds of uh, species, shapes, colors, uh, behaviors of, of animal and plant life out there in the world. So it's it's a it's a rather sounds like a very complex term, but it's really rather simple. It's really uh, biodiversity at, a, at its essence just means uh, the diversity of life in the world. So tell us some more about those insects, those very cool bugs. So those very cool study. bugs that I study. So uh, many of our listeners are probably familiar with cicadas. Yes. Uh, you hear them in, in the spring and summer uh, singing really, really loudly. So I actually don't study cicadas, even though I've just said uh, <laughs> we're all familiar with cicadas. I study things that are very closely related to cicadas. So they're cousins, if you will, and, and they're a little bit lesser known. Um, but things like tree hoppers and plant hoppers and spittle bugs are, are uh, spittle bugs. really cool bugs. They're, they're very enormously important for the world. Uh, they many of them are pests of agriculture and, and uh, deal millions of dollars of economic damage to our crops around the world. Things like sugarcane and wheat and rice and other crops. But these are, as I said, lesser known to the public because they don't have that kind of in-your-face stinging voice that the cicadas do. Having said that, these things are fantastic, great colors and shapes. They look like little aliens, little monsters, and they're all around us. Uh, and it's just a matter of observing them where they live. How did you get interested or how did you start studying about the plant hoppers and tree hoppers and well, spittle bugs? Through my uh, high school and, and early college career, I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. That's really what I wanted to do. My father's a dentist, and I thought perhaps I would go into dental work. Uh, and that's where all my coursework was kind of aiming towards. Once I got through the initial courses for that program, I started taking uh, elective courses. And those elective courses were things like field zoology and entomology and whatnot. And I ran into a professor who just had this weird kind of funny sense of humor. He knew everything about everything. And I said, you know, I, I want to be like that guy. But I grew up in Vermont and I decided I wanted to be like that guy, but in the tropics. So that's how it worked. I, I didn't come to entomology as a, as a career choice. 
until midway through my college career. I've always, as a kid, loved nature and that kind of thing, but I was not the kid who was collecting bugs as a, as a hobby or anything like that. I just, in general, loved nature uh, and then came to entomology as a, as a career later on. So what was your first field work or your the first time you really, yeah. what sealed the deal? Well, uh, again, taking these courses with this guy, with this one professor, his name is Dr. Ross Bell up at you know, the University of Vermont. I retired now, but he he, um, he really just jazzed me on all things field-based and nature and natural sciences. As I said, he's an entomologist by training as well, but he knew the plants and he knew the birds and he knew the mammals and he knew the, the you know, everything about when we went on these field trips. And it was really inspiring to me. It really just brought me into a new realm of possibilities for a career. Once I experienced that and decided that that's the direction my career wanted to go to, I explored graduate schools and graduate studies, and I came to North Carolina. In that experience, I, I went to Costa Rica a few times and, and kind of started experiencing the tropics, which is where my true passion lies. And I would imagine that the diversity of bugs and insects in Costa Rica significantly yes. <laughs> higher than Indeed. you might have than you might have thought you'd find in Vermont. Indeed, that's right. So, so uh, the diversity, the biodiversity of these insects is very uh, strong in the temperate regions, but really just explodes in the tropics. So, whether you're talking about the New World, that is Central and South America, or the Old World, Africa and Asia, Australia, the diversity in the tropics of these insects it just is is overwhelming and, and uh, awe-inspiring. So so what are you studying now? So my training uh, with these insects, I'm very interested in new species discovery. So when I go out to the field and I'm in crawling through rainforest and jungles, so one of the goals is to discover new species, right? So we're increasing the biodiversity, using that word again, uh, increasing the, the numbers of species that we're, we're uh, describing as new to science. Of course, these are species that have been around for you know hundreds of thousands of years, but they have yet to be discovered, right? So they're, they're new to science. And that discovery is often one of the most exciting things that we do as a scientist. Bringing to light new species that haven't ever been examined before is uh, is one of the true pleasures of being a of being a, an entomologist. But then it's what we do with that information as well, right? So, right? so, so not only do we describe new species and increase the biodiversity, but we also, uh, my interests lie in figuring out which species are related to which species, how closely and, how, and why. I'm interested in figuring out historically where they originated and how they got to their current distributions. How many species of insects well, do so they estimate are out there? It's a great. So we have over a million species of insects described, known to science. Estimates probably, I'm not certain for insects themselves, but for all of life, uh, probably 10 to 15 million species. Wow. Uh, when just a fraction of that are, are, are known. So, so kids could be in their driveway. Absolutely. And they could see something. Discoveries can happen anywhere, anytime. So speaking of which, what do you do when you make a discovery? How does that work? Or, yeah. or how do you know if you've found a new insect? Right. So there's a kind of a series of dominoes that have to fall when you make these discoveries. And some of these discoveries are made when we go out to the field and we collect specimens and, and you know, are actually physically looking for them. But many of these discoveries are made when you're looking at existing collections, say, for example, in the museums, uh, this one and other ones around the world. So museums maintain these collections that we've talked about before of specimens, whether they're insects or plants or mammals or whatever. As a researcher will look through those those collections, he or she may uh, notice a slight variation in, in color or shape or size. So you or might like think that. you have th- or you might think you have three of the same moth, right. but in fact in you fact, have you may have different 
different species. Because the variations might be so slight, but in exactly. fact, it's a variation. That's exactly right. And that's where the, the expertise of, of the scientists called taxonomists come into play, right? So a, a scientist or researcher who has some experience or some expertise in a particular animal or plant group will look at a collection and say, you know, uh, here's a drawer or here's a, a set of specimens, but that one looks a little different. So that's kind of initially how these things are discovered. But then once once that happens, there's a whole series of research steps that one takes to to verify if that discovery is really in fact something new and different. And those those steps include things like looking at other museum collections, right, to see if you can duplicate or replicate that that variation that you see. In more modern times now, we can do genetic testing. We can do DNA sequencing, and so we can we can look at even from an animal that's no longer living. You can extract it's, those cells. It's possible, yeah. It becomes a little more difficult yeah. when things are uh, you know older and preserved. But yes, yeah, certainly the technology allows us to do that kind of thing, and and so we can look at you know physical anatomical differences. We can look at genetic differences. We can look at uh, if you if you are lucky enough to observe these things in the field, you can look at behavioral differences or timing developmental differences, and all. All of these are pieces of evidence that uh, lead the researcher to determine whether or not they have something new and different. A bit of detective work. A bit of detective work. So a child who has fantastic observation skills would probably be well suited for a a career in science. No doubt. Absolutely true. And so if you, um, you know... It's that sense of curiosity. It's that sense of wonder that that, uh, inspires us and leads leads us to do this kind of activity. And, And... uh, kids out there who have that sense of curiosity about the natural world they do very well. What's the craziest insect you've ever worked with? The, the entire group that I work with are, are crazy. So, so tree hoppers as a group, uh, there, are, there are thousands of species of tree hoppers, and some of them have such fantastic shapes that, that when people look at them, uh, they, they wonder if it's something that we've made up just to kind of pull their leg a little bit. So we're talking about little insects with horns and spines and colors and, and you know, weird, really weird shapes. Things, Insects with horns and spines. Things that you would never even conceive of. They look like they're little Martians or, you know, they've been called mild-mannered mini-monsters. Some of them are very difficult. To, they look like they might have antlers or, you know, just all kinds of crazy shapes. Uh, there's one in particular uh, that's known by a single specimen that I actually named uh, scientifically after my son. You found it. I found it and existed in a collection. So, so you got was, to name it. I got to name it and uh, as, as its primary author. There are some very um, definite rules that, that taxonomists follow for naming species. And so uh, in this particular case, I named it after my son when he was being born. So it, it's, a, it's a strange little tree hopper without crazy little horns and, and things uh, called Lycoderes nathanieli. So I'm guessing <laughs> your son's name is Nathaniel. So I it guess the nathanieli part, what's, right. what's the Lycoderes? So Lycoderes is the genus name. So that's the larger group that, to which this insect belongs. Can you talk a little bit about that, like the, yeah. the genus and sort of that right. um, the, yeah. the categorization of things? Sure. So there's a hierarchical classification system that, that scientists use. And by that, I mean that, that uh, a, a given species will fit into a larger genus, and that genus are, are species that are very closely related, and they share some kind of evolutionary attribute, you know, whether it's an anatomical uh, or genetic or, or behavioral feature. So uh, a species will fit into a genus, uh, and a set of genera, that's the plural of the word genus, a set of genera will fit into a family, a set of families will fit into an order. So it's a, it's a, this hierarchical cascading system of membership, if you will, based on relatedness. So it's sort of like the giant schoolhouse, and then the classroom inside there, and then the desk inside the classroom. That's a very good analogy. Yes. So it's the, which, which one's the school? 
So the school would be the higher, the, the larger group, the family or the order. or, or The, the family or the right. order. And then what's the classroom? And then the classroom may be the, the genus. The genus. And then and the students in the classroom or the desks in the classroom may be the species of, of that genus, if you will. Got it. Rumor has it that you have worked with bugs that salivate or <laughs> create spit. Indeed. So much that uh, if you stand under a tree at, at, an, at an inopportune time, it might be a little disgusting. Yeah. So, so. So I've mentioned tree hoppers and plant yes. hoppers. Uh, a, a very closely related group of insects are called spittlebugs. And spittlebugs, you're walking through a field uh, in spring or summer and you're... Your what pants, field should I avoid? Pretty much all, all of them. And, and, <laughs> they're and, they're and everywhere. They're, and, they're, any, so it's, it's yeah. on all continents? It's not a tropical? It's not uh, a, Well, certainly, again, the, the biodiversity increases uh, um, rather significantly in the in the tropics. But we have them here in, in the temperate... U.S., oh. for example. Oh, okay. So if you're walking through that field and, and your pants are wet, and, and you, you may not have, um, or you may have experienced spittlebugs. So basically, what I mean by that is the, the babies of these things. Uh, let me step back and say that all of these insects are plant eaters, and they, uh, more than just being plant eaters, their mouth parts have evolved or changed over time into basically hypodermic needles, but they exclusively eat plants, so they cannot bite other animals and they, they just physically are unable to. But they, they insert these needle-like uh, mouth parts into the plant and they suck out the liquid sap from inside the plant. So the, the baby spittlebugs eat a certain kind of plant sap called xylem, which is not a very nutritious food source. So they have to eat a lot of it. And they have, because it's liquid, they pass a lot of this liquid through their bodies. They've got to do something with it. And so the strategy that, that spittlebugs have taken is that the, the, the babies of these things will suck out all the sap from the plant, pass it through their bodies, and they basically make what looks like a little glob of spit. It has, uh, it's kind of liquidy and bubbly and whitish, and, and they live inside this little spit mass, if you will, uh, and they develop in there. And what that does is it, it protects them from drying out. It protects them from being eaten by other things. It protects them from predation. Uh, and, and they live in this. They it, live in their own ball of they spit. They live in their own ball of spit. Okay, and, that's and great. That's, They're protected <laughs> bubble of spit. Right. All right. Now, as adults, they emerge. They, they come out of that bubble, <laughs> you know, bubble spit mass. And they uh, they grow wings, and they they're free living in in the temperate regions. So, for example, the the United States and Europe, and most of the species of spittlebugs live singly. That means that one one nymph or one baby, one larva, uh, will make its own little spit mass and live by itself. <laughs> in other parts of the world, and then more particularly, uh, more specifically in parts of Africa, many of the species live gregariously, and that means that they, they live together. Many nymphs uh, on a branch or a, a plant uh, will live together and create kind of a big mass spit. There's a phenomenon in, in Africa called the rain tree. And so if you've ever heard of a rain tree, this is what it is. It's, it's a bunch of spittlebug babies living together on a branch or a tree, uh, sucking out all the sap, making this big spittle mass, and there's so much liquid being passed through that that spit drips down. And so it's it's essentially constantly raining underneath this tree, and and uh, it can get kind of messy. <laughs> and that's that's a phenomenon known as the the African rain tree. So, um, since this is the walking classroom, yes. I have to ask. Where is your favorite place to walk, other than under the raining tree? tree. <laughs> yes. Well, I've I've really been very fortunate in my career to to travel and work in countries around the world, and probably one of my favorite places in the world to walk a place in Borneo, 
called uh, Gunung Mulu National Park. It's a World Heritage Site in northern Borneo in a uh, region called Sarawak, and it is a fantastic place. It's, it's full of wondrous biodiversity, and, and we're talking about uh, not only insects, but mammals, bats, and, and uh, other mammals, fantastic plants, a lot of uh, carnivorous pitcher plants and things. It's just an amazing place, and so walking through the rainforest there is probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. Oh, fantastic, and I'm sure you're always on the lookout for new species. And... Always. Well, indeed. Dr. Crying, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.